State Representative Kip Kendrick earned a reputation in the Missouri House as an expert on the budget and as an advocate for the University of Missouri-Columbia. But the Columbia Democrat is leaving early to become chief of staff for Senator-elect Greg Razor, and he joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about his decision and the impact of term limits on the legislature. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom is St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse reporter. Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us perhaps for the final time, he is a Democrat from Boone County and uh, a soon-to-be former state representative. Kip Kendrick. Thank you very much, Representative, for joining us. Uh, you were on the show earlier this year with State Representative Martha Stevens, as I was explaining before. This was in the before times when we could all be in person, and it was a great conversation in uh, KBIA studios. But the reason we're having you back on is you announced that you will be leaving the General Assembly to be chief of staff for Senator-elect Greg Razor, who is a Democrat from Kansas City. Why did you decide to do that? I, I was uh, I was surprised by the call when Greg uh, called me uh, when I think it was a Saturday morning uh, to to make the offer, um, and immediately began having conversations with my wife Sarah uh, about it. She was uh, immediately she was like, "Yeah, this is a no brainer," uh, and in many ways, I think she's just as excited, if not more excited, about the opportunity than I am. Uh, but ultimately, it came down to you know you start thinking in your final two years, and I was. I was just elected my fourth and final term in the Missouri House. Uh, but you start to think, well, what comes next? And, and how can I maintain a relevancy inside the Capitol? I feel like I've I built respect, uh, trust, uh, built relationships. I, I understand um, a lot of state government. Part of sitting on budget for, uh, for six years, uh, it gives you a good overview of the departments as well as, um, as, well as how the state operates. And so... You know, with my time uh, coming to an end with, with term limits here in the state, uh, this opportunity uh, provided me the ability to, to continue to have a table in a different role, obviously, uh, working for Senator-elect Razor, uh, but allowed me to continue my time in the Capitol, which is really important to me at this point. I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy having a seat with, uh, at the table uh, regarding public policy, and, and this will allow me to, to continue moving forward. I guess, what will you be able to accomplish accomplish now in the position as chief of staff for Senator-elect Razor than you were able to do as a representative in the House? Well, that's a good question. Uh, in, in many aspects, in, in certain ways, I think that I, I may actually have the ability to influence more as a, a chief of staff for Senator-elect Razor than I even was in a super minority in the House. Um, you know, a lot of my time and energy was focusing on the budget. Uh, the budgeting process. And so I hope to continue that role in the Senate as much as I can. 
Uh, and then, you know, helping Senator-elect Razor on the policy initiatives that he hopes to, to push forward and understanding that Democrats in the Senate have more power uh, than Democrats in the House uh, currently in Missouri. And, uh, you know, just helping him navigate uh, the policy issues that he's hoping to push, uh, things that will come uh, before him in committee. And then also understanding my role as a chief of, uh, you know, working with constituents in the Kansas City area, working also with the departments and um, across the state will be, it'll be different, uh, but there'll be a lot of things that I at least have a foundation uh, built in my time in the House that I can transfer easily to the Senate. Do you feel as though policy-wise you're aligned with Senator-elect Razor? I mean, do you have some of the same broad concepts that want to be pushed through the Senate? Yeah, um, without speaking too much for, for the uh, Senator-elect, um, we do have a, a good amount of policy overlap. I mean, you know, I just thinking in terms of, of my district and, and my interest here in Columbia in the 45th district, you know, Greg's a, a true son of the university. He was Truman the Tiger, literally Truman the Tiger when his time at the university. So higher education, public higher education, the university is very important to him. Um, infrastructure has always been, you know, key to his time in the house, um, in, in particular MoDOT uh, and how they uh, can navigate the future with kind of decreased uh, decrease funding streams uh, at the at the current uh, state. Um, also, you know, one thing that we um, we agree upon and have had some great conversations on our uh, healthcare access and especially uh, mental health uh, care access. We think that's going to be critical. Uh, he filed a mental health parity bill in his time in the House and looks forward to uh, filing that again in the Senate. And, uh, you know, it's it's critical that that discussion, I don't think, could be any more timely, given uh, the mental health impact uh, that the pandemic has had on all of society. Obviously, you were a really important asset for Democrats, particularly regarding the state budget. I mean, I've only been here a year, but I learned your name very quickly. We're at a really critical time in our state in the pandemic, the economic resources, as Governor Parson has mentioned, we are rebounding as a state, but it is still a critical time. So I wonder, who do you feel confident in passing that torch to, per se? I mean, obviously you had just such a big hand in that for the Democrats. Yeah, um, you know, Representative Peter Meredith out of uh, the St. Louis area will be taking over. Uh, it's my understanding that he will be the ranking minority member on the budget committee. Uh, Peter has been on budget committee for the last four years, his entire uh, time in the House. Uh, he's a very smart guy, um, has, a, has a good understanding uh, of the budget and will continue um, to gain a better understanding just as that you know ex experience of time will allow for him. Uh, he asked some great questions of the department and uh, I fully expect the, the handoff to him will be smooth in that role. So let's talk about an issue that I think was central to you departing early from the Missouri House, and that's term limits. One of the things you mentioned in your letter is that you feel that term limits is kind of an inhibitant for legislators to stay up to the eight years. That is is the, the ceiling, so to speak, in either the House or the Senate. And I want you to explain that reasoning before we delve deeper down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So um, I believe it was last year uh, someone had informed me that the, you know, the average stay of a legislator right now in the state of Missouri uh, with term limits is around five years. And, and that's been pretty 
uh, anecdotally speaking, that tracks well with uh, with where uh, with what I've experienced in the house. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a fairly young man. I've got a, a young family. Uh, you know, with term limits being at eight years and knowing that I only had two years left in the house, you, you do start thinking what, what comes next. You want to make sure that you can that you can land on your feet. Uh, you want to make sure that that transmit transition is as smooth as possible. Uh, and when opportunities like this present themselves, and especially in this form where it allows me to continue on in the capital, kind of building on my time uh, in the house, this, this transition made perfect sense to me. Uh, but it does. I mean, it makes you think um, pretty constantly when that clock is ticking, what comes next? I'm going to play a clip now from future House Majority Leader Dean Plocker. He is not a fi- I don't think he's officially House Majority Leader yet, but he will be after 2021. This is from an interview in 2017 when he was talking about a proposal that would have allowed someone to serve 12 years in the House and four years in the Senate or 12 years in the Senate and four years in the House. And he explained some of the pitfalls of the current eight years in the House, eight years in the Senate setup. Not everyone wants to be a senator. Mm-hmm. There's only 34 of them. But what you do see with the term limits now, perhaps, is that many House reps after eight years are all lining up to run for Senate. And it creates a lot of predictability. And I think you also see people that, well, I only get eight years in the House. And after their sixth year, they might, they might have otherwise called it quits. But they feel like, you know, maybe they're obligated to serve that extra two years. The party, you've, you've been there, you've learned the ropes a little bit. It's just one more term. By allowing someone to do 12 years, the, the House will gain more historical perspective in its body. Now, I don't know what percent might serve 12 years, uh, and certainly not everybody. But what we have now, and there are accusations that, you know, lobbyists have a greater influence on our body with term limits as they are now. Mm-hmm. And this, if that were true, would help cut back on that. So that proposal that he was alluding to never got any traction. There have been efforts to do 16 years in either chamber that have never gotten traction. Why do you think the efforts to change term limits, and it would have to go to a statewide vote, have not made it out of the legislature for the public to actually ratify or reject? If you remember, I believe it was at the end of the 2019 legislative session, maybe I think it was the end of 2019 legislative session. Uh, there was there was a proposal fairly close to to making it on the ballot uh, that was coming up for a final vote in the House uh, that stalled out in the final legislative day of that regular session uh, that would allow for the 16 years. I think part of the problem uh, with that one, at least being discussed in the building, it would have reset the clock for everyone in the General Assembly at that point. So you would have had uh, members who had served 16 years, uh, you know, eight and eight who then had their clock reset to serve an additional 16. Many people would have seen that as self-fulfilling and potentially politically damaged to them uh, taking a yes vote on it. Uh, I think part of it is that just the concern about what um, what a proposed change coming out of the General Assembly would look like and how that would be perceived. Um, I will say the um, one of the more interesting things um, outcomes of this last election uh, just a few weeks ago in November was the amendment one vote. Uh, I actually, I'll be completely honest, I wasn't even paying attention to that one the next day. I just assumed that it passed. I think it was day two or three, someone told me, you know, that failed, right? Yeah. And just to just to interrupt you, amendment one would have placed term limits on 
statewide offices that are not currently term limited, like auditor, secretary of state, uh, lieutenant governor, attorney general, treasurer and governor are already term limited. And you're right, it failed. I was very surprised by that. But but continue. Yeah, I, I was shocked by it. And, and I think that at some point um, there needs to be a conversation or at least some dissecting of, of what what happened there. Why Why did that fail? And does that give should that give us some indication that the general public is now changing their outlook on term limits? And does the General Assembly have the ability to put something out there that may get get some traction uh, to be to be voted on and approved by uh, by the general public? I'm going to play another clip now that kind of touches on that point from former Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder. He served three terms in the Missouri Senate and three terms as Lieutenant Governor. So he kind of knows what it's like to be in a, I guess, a non-term limited environment. And he, this was four years ago, but he talked about some of the difficulties of reversing course since any change to term limits will have to be voted on by the people. Uh, I could make you an argument on either side, but I think it's uh, academic because the people grafted this onto our Constitution by a 72% vote, supermajority, and it's not going anywhere. I, I understand all the arguments against term limits, but I've seen it move some awfully capable people into public office who might not have ever had a chance before, and, and uh, the people have endorsed them. I think what he's getting at is even if you could make a really strong philosophical case uh, against term limits, there's a real visceral uh, embrace of the idea by everyday people. I think that there's often times when you're talking with somebody uh, who's not that interested in politics and maybe like, man, I would really like uh, members of Congress to be term limited or you know, we got to throw those bums out, so to speak. Like, how do you cut through that, even if you make the arguments that, like, Representative Plocker just made or that you're just making? That's a good question. I don't know how you work through some of it. Uh, I mean, yes, you're right. I think the general public has seems to look favorably upon term limits. Um, it's and, you know, as, as former Lieutenant Governor uh, Kinder mentioned, I don't know that I would have had the opportunity to serve in the General Assembbly if, if term limits didn't exist. It's possible that, uh, you know, the time wouldn't have come, especially, you know, now. I, it may have been later in life when I had the ability to, to serve. Uh, there are strong arguments, I think, that can be made at least, uh, you know, at surface level for, for why term limits are good. But, you know, having experienced, um, you know, such an erosion of institutional knowledge inside the building and understanding is, uh, as the clip you played earlier from Representative Plocker, you mentioned it, it does hand over a lot of power to the lobbyists. And that's not to say that you know, lobbyists serve uh, a bad purpose. They serve an important purpose in the General Assembly, uh, but they have the institutional knowledge. They have the wherewithal uh, to, to be able to move something through where a, a newer member may just not have that understanding of how to actually move the legislation uh, across the finish line. They also have, um, you know, the historical knowledge of, of why certain um, laws are written the way they are. And, and you know, depending on who their, uh, who their employer is or who the contract is with to do the lobbying work, they may withhold some of that information uh, for, you know, for purposes that benefits their client. And that's no disrespect to any of them. It's just part of, uh, part of the, uh, the process of uh, being a member of the General Assembly and, and that lobbyist uh, elected official um, relationship. So you 
kind of said this, but I want to ask in a different way, only because I think it's important for people listening to this podcast who may not necessarily, you know, spend every day inside the state capitol. Jason and I are both very well aware of why term limits are from a state where there are none. And as I mentioned prior to taping that, starting to record this interview, we in Illinois have had a Speaker of the House that has been there for decades, three decades. It looks like he may um, finally lose his tenure there, but obviously we get it. But what you're talking about and what your letter spoke about um, in announcing your time in the legislature coming to the end is that there are some unintended consequences. And just in regular people speak, what are those? I mean, what are the challenges for new members coming in? Why is that institutional knowledge so important? Um, why is it important that we have people in the legislature that know the ropes? Yeah, it, just to focus in on you know my um, you know my experience of really diving into the budget. We have a thirty-plus billion dollar budget uh, that you know is House Bill one through fourteen, and then we'll see you know House Bill 14, 17, 18, 19, uh, all appropriation bills. Uh, coming through the General Assembly each and every year, understanding that budget takes quite a few years to, to wrap your mind around, understanding the funding mechanism, how revenue comes in, how unpredictable revenue can be in any certain uh, fiscal year. The, the institutional knowledge that you gain in those first, really the first two terms I found where coming into my, my third term in office at fifth year, really finally started to gel for me, especially on budget committee, where I felt like I, I was hitting my stride in that fifth year and into the sixth year. And then, you know, you're already on that downhill slide towards term limits. Your, your time is going to be running out in the relatively near future. Um, I mean, you mentioned, you know, a state, obviously, Illinois, where, you know, argument of, of term limits uh, could is going to probably be strong in the, in the general public. Um, I would caution any state looking at uh, adding term limits that look to Missouri as an example of how not to do it in such a short period of time. That eight years, if you're going to add term limits, do it much longer than eight years. You know, consider the 16, uh, I 12 probably at the least that you can serve in, in any one body. Uh, the eight is just such a quick turnaround that, again, as we mentioned, it um, that eight is the max, but you're going to see people. Uh, who choose to make that exit sooner because they know if something comes along that allows them the opportunity to stay sooner than that eighth, then they may make that jump sooner arbitrarily. Now, before we go to a break, I do I would be remiss if we didn't talk about another inhibitant for people to stay in office but or even run, and that's the the pay. Right now, I think that legislators get paid what thirty five thousand dollars a year plus per diem. Is that correct? It's close to thirty six, but yeah, yes. And, and you had another job for most of your tenure in the legislature, correct? That's correct, yes. So the reason I bring that up is you're in a situation where you live really, really close to the Capitol, so having another job and serving is, is possible. If somebody lives in St. Louis and makes between, I don't know, forty dollars and $50,000 a year and has kids, even if they're really interested in running for the state house, I can't imagine anybody that would take a $15,000 pay cut to be two hours away from their family four days a week if they could be making more money in the private sector or, or, or something else. And I understand that like every time an effort comes, and there will be an effort in 2021, to raise legislative pay, 
it always gets like voted down because I think members are fearful that voting for it will be used in an ad campaign against them or a mail piece. But I, I, I really truly believe that keeping legislative pay this low, it, it, it creates a legislature where only certain types of people are going to run. Young people, wealthy people, retired people are people with very flexible jobs like attorneys. Is there any way to really solve this issue, or do you think that this is just going to continue to be caught into the political machinations that I just referred to? I, I mean, you're, yeah, you're exactly right. I voted no on every resolution that came forward to increase our pay, specifically for the mentioned reason, or that you that you mentioned. I did not want to uh, be on the record as voting in favor of my own pay raise. That. Politically, it's it's damaging, and you expect it to be used against you at some point. But it does not get at the issue of uh, legislators' pay has been frozen for well over a decade now. Um, it is low, and if you do want to recruit and retain talent in that role, it has to be addressed at some point. And that's not to say there's not talent down there. There is. I mean, there's a lot of bright young people, uh, you know, bright people of all ages there. But it does it does probably stop a significant amount of people uh, from running for office because of the, of the low pay and the, and the hours. Um, you know, I don't, I'm able to, to balance my work um, outside of the general assembly. I work around, it's a 900 hour contract. I work usually typically around a thousand hours. They're very flexible. Not all employers are going to be that flexible. Uh, you mentioned the close proximity to where I live, obviously is important also for me to be able to do that. Um, but it's, um, you know, without that extra income, it'd, it'd be challenging with a young family. We'll be right back after this short break with State Representative Kip Kendrick. And we're back on Politically Speaking with departing State Representative Kip Kendrick, a Democrat from Columbia. The last time you were on this show, you talked about uh, the prospect of Medicaid expansion. It, it had not been passed yet. It passed in August by, I think, about five or six percentage points. And now it's going to be up to the legislature to actually implement that. What are your expectations for that? And could it be caught in some of the partisan crossfires that we've seen over the past few years over this issue? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I I do expect that there will be... um some battles or at least some disagreements that are going to arise in this 2021 legislative session. Uh, I think that you'll see some of those play out in the budgeting process in House Bill 10 and House Bill 11 uh, as it relates to, to actually funding MoHealthNet and Medicaid services. Um, you know, it has been a, obviously it's, this isn't news to you uh, or Jacqueline that uh, certain members of the, the budget committee, including the chair, believe it's going to cost uh, likely minimum of two, $200 million general revenue uh, in order to, to get the program up and running. And so that's a significant amount of money. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that it's going to cost that much up front. I, I believe that we're going to see cost savings through other mechanisms, through other ways. The constant churning of people on and off of Medicaid, I think you'll see more individuals go the expansion route rather than coming on as a uh, uh, permanently and totally disabled population or other populations that are have 
that cost us a bit more as a state uh, relative to the reimbursement at the federal level. Um, but that being said, if if certain members believe that it's going to cost us 200 million plus, then I expect the General Assembly, uh, at least on the House side, to try to budget for that. And and whether it comes to fruition or not, that's going to mean a very difficult budgeting process at a time where you know where we are planning for FY22, likely seeing uh, either revenue down or you know relatively flat from the economic recession caused by the pandemic. So there is going to be there will be a painful budgeting process. You'll likely see uh, money coming from other areas of the budget in order to uh, in order to fund expansion. There, there could be attempts to um, undo or inhibit expansion through the budgeting process. I'm not exactly for sure what that would look like. Uh, if it's not appropriated, then you know I guess technically expansion couldn't happen. I know the constitutional amendment tries to get at that. Uh, I do expect an ongoing uh, further conversation about uh, the possibility of work requirements being added to the Medicaid uh, expansion population here in the state. Uh, you would see that in the form of a, a resolution, either a House joint resolution or Senate joint resolution to put that on the ballot for people to decide if work requirements are to be included. And one thing we saw last year in a, um, a work requirement resolution was also language near the bottom of that resolution that would make Medicaid subject to appropriation, uh, which is would, would be a change from the constitutional amendment that was passed for Medicaid expansion. That would probably allow much more flexibility for the General Assembly to simply um, subvert the will of the people and not expand Medicaid by not funding it through the appropriation process. Obviously, we've heard a lot from those who are opposed, particularly Republicans, against expansion. Do you have a concern about expanding Medicaid? Do you have a concern on the state budget? I mean, I just want your perspective on that because you've looked at it, you know the numbers. I, I do tend to think that there's going to be some upfront costs. I, um, you know, I don't know how we would expand the population at a 90-10 uh, match and not see some upfront costs. Uh, I don't think that they're anywhere near uh, the 200 plus million, or actually we've heard you know 300 million in costs with the increased unemployment uh, due to the pandemic. Um, I'm not exactly for sure where they come in. The department still has not released uh, their uh, new decision item uh, for the budget for the governor's budget recommendation, or at least the department governor uh, budget recommendation. So we're anticipating that hopefully coming out in the relatively near future. Uh, but I do expect, you know, anywhere, a cost from anywhere from 10 to up to, I would think upwards of 70, 75 million for a new decision item in general revenue uh, in order to ensure that we can, you know, pay our 10% portion of that 90-10 match. Uh, but that levels out and, and quickly becomes, um, you know, a, a net positive on revenue, especially considering all the economic impact of having all that money drawn down to the state. If somebody came to you and sa- and asked you, should I run for the state legislature? Is it worth it, given all we've talked about? Not only the lo- relatively low pay, but also the term limits and also these vexing policy issues. What would you say to them? I, I would be completely honest with them. Uh, as I have, everybody has reached out to me the last uh, several days, or at least the, you know, the three or four people who have uh, had conversations with me expressing some interest in running. Uh, it is 
especially serving in a super minority, it is, um, it is very challenging. Um, but it has been one of the most rewarding experiences in my life. Um, I, the education that you get uh, sitting on the budget committee in particular for me has been tremendous. Um, I feel like I'm better positioned as a, as a citizen uh, to impact changes here locally moving forward, having served. Um, I, you know, having a seat at the table on major policy discussions, even, even if serving in a super minority, some of the work that I've done is some incremental changes. Those incremental changes are on the statewide level. So they're going to have a, a fairly significant impact on people. And, you know, if you can walk into the seat, if you can, if you can enter elected office with a reasonable expectation on what's possible, uh, and with the understanding that it is, there are going to be days where you're just extremely frustrated. Um, you, you can have a good outlook. You can maintain that um, that optimism that you need uh, to keep pushing through those challenging times. And uh, and it, whether or not I ever had a, a name with my bill on it get uh, or a, a bill with my name on it get signed into law. I know that I was able to impact policy, and that and that's what's most important to me is uh, is is having the you know being able to steer policy in certain ways, discussions uh, that's going to be impactful long past my time in the general assembly. I have a couple of just like rapid fire questions I want to ask you, so don't feel the pressure to expound on them. But um, what do you feel? Like, what is your proudest moment in the state legislature? Yeah, I think it came very early on. It was one of my proudest moments of, um, of working on the telehealth rewrite. We, there was a massive telehealth rewrite that we got started in 2015. It passed in 2016. It was a bill that Representative Jay Barnes out of Jefferson City carried. Um, and, you know, I worked with him on it and made sure that schools was included in originating sites for school-based telehealth. And... Then we revisited that conversation in 2018 to ensure uh, that, you know, basically services that can be provided via telehealth or in person, that that same standard of care can be provided across both uh, platforms based on, you know, data that was showing us that telehealth is just as uh, successful as in-person visits. That is probably what I'm most proud of, especially during a, a pandemic where telehealth has really risen uh, to the level that it has. I think it really put Missouri in a great place to be a leader on telehealth. And then, you know, just um, my, my desire from early on to, to just build relationships and build trust inside the building. I think I've got, um, a, I think I've got a good reputation inside the building, inside state government. That's important for me personally. Um, and, you know, even if you can't get a whole lot done Policy-wise, sometimes in a super minority, just having uh, the respect uh, was it was important to me to to build. That was, I assume, that's your biggest challenge. But that was my next question: What was the biggest challenge or hurdle? Was it being in a super minority, or was there anything else that you can point to that was particularly difficult? Yeah, it was building. Um, yeah, it was being in a super minority. That's challenging. Um, understanding too that. You know, what we're talking about with term limits, lack of institutional knowledge, that so many people in the building who are in a similar boat as me trying to, to, to swim and, and just keep our head above water as we're learning the processes uh, and figuring out who you can go to, who you can trust to go to, to provide you that, you know, that good direction 
on how to get things uh, accomplished in the building um, is very, you know, you have to, you have to learn that quickly. And sometimes you learn it the hard way too. My final rapid fire question. What do you think is the best state park in the state of Missouri? Oh my goodness. It'd be hard. Well, I mean, just with close proximity, it'd be hard for me to say it's not Rockbridge. Um, But You know, you get down to the Ozarks and it's hard for me to name a state park that's my favorite. You just get down there and it's such it's such beautiful, diverse country. Uh, you know, you get you can get glades and, and remnant prairies and uh, see all kinds of different uh, flora fauna that you can't see in, in North Missouri or central uh, and mid-Missouri area. So probably one of the many state parks down there. I, honestly, if you asked me that question, I couldn't answer it either because there is so many. But on that note, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how could people follow you on Twitter? At Driscoll NPR. And how could people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Yeah, Kip underscore uh, Kendrick. KipKendrick.com is my website. 